listening to the Miracle Word Podcast. We believe that the Word of God gives you the power to experience never-ending increase in every area. If you're ready for revelation that will take you to the next level, you're in the right place. Here's your host, evangelist, author, and founder of Miracle Word University, Ted Shuttlesworth, Jr. Jumping in uh, to this thought today of uh, the three massive mistakes that people make when they study the Word of God. Three massive mistakes. And obviously, I don't want you to make these. And I'm, you know, I, I'll even share some stories with you. I made these mistakes, uh, even as a younger minister. And uh, they are mistakes, by the way. And I'll, I'll talk to you about what I did. But if you didn't get a chance to share yet, take a moment to share. And uh, we're going to jump into this. But I want you to take your Bible with me. And I want you to open it up. It's always good to open it. <laughs> It's always important to open the Bible. Um, But I want you to go with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. And I want to read you just one verse of scripture, very important scripture, to start this thought process today. Um, And that's 2 Timothy chapter 2. And let's look at verse 15. 2 Timothy 2, 15. And I know many of you are popping those uh, scriptures in the comments for those that watch later. Very much appreciate that. And if you're listening on the podcast, welcome um, and take a minute to share it on social media somehow, whether you put it on your Instagram story, Facebook, uh, MySpace, Friendster, whatever you got, Tinder, Grinder, whatever. All right, let's jump in. Second uh, Timothy chapter two, let's look at verse number 15 together. And this is Paul writing to his son in the gospel, Timothy. Second uh, Timothy, by the way, considered to be the last book or letter Paul ever wrote in his life. He wrote it from captivity in Rome and uh, is talking to Timothy about the fact that he has uh, run his race, finished his course. So this is Paul's last letter uh, that he ever wrote. And this is what he says to Timothy, his son in the gospel. Verse 15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. And a footnote here says that is one that's approved after being tested a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So notice this. This this is a command of Paul to Timothy, a younger minister. He says, make sure you're working to present yourself to God as a worker that doesn't need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So what does that mean? It means that it's possible for you to be a worker that handles the word of God improperly and that you do need to be ashamed. (laughs) Or Paul's inferring here that there is, it is shameful to not handle the word of God properly. And I'll show you why in a moment because I'm going to give you some examples. Uh, Paul's saying it is shameful to be a worker who is Uh, not properly handling God's word. There's all kinds of abuses, as you know, uh, to the word of God. Preachers that abuse the word of God, teachers, they teach false doctrine. In fact, the Bible says that in the final moments of time, the last days, that there would be not just preachers and teachers that would do that, but also people would want to hear teaching and preaching that was literally just scratching their itch for a doctrine that makes them comfortable 
rather than what God truly wants. The Bible says in the last days that they will accumulate unto themselves preachers and teachers that'll teach false doctrines. And of course, one translation says doctrines of devils. So it's demonic uh, doctrines, demonic doctrines. So Paul's really heavily commanding Timothy here, work hard when you're studying the Bible, when you're preaching the, the scriptures, when you're teaching the scriptures to rightly handle it, handle it properly. Don't distort it. Don't manipulate it. Don't make these mistakes. You want to be able to present yourself to God as a workman that doesn't need to be ashamed, an approved worker, an approved worker. And I like that footnote that I read to you. Um, it, it says here, uh, that is one who is approved after being tested. And so your, your actions will be the test. And so I wanted to take a minute, and there's many more I could give you, but I don't know that we'd have the time uh, within the broadcast to do more than this. But <clears throat> I want to give you here three that are common, three huge mistakes people make when studying the Bible that are very common. And so I'm going to give you examples of these two so that you know exactly what I'm talking about uh, so that you don't make these same mistakes. Um, and, and those of you that are putting it in the comments, help me out by putting each, each of the three in the comments for me. Uh, the first one, the first massive mistake that people make when studying the Bible, teaching or even preaching the Bible is number one, taking scriptures out of context, taking scriptures out of context. This happens all the time, happens all the time. And it's, it's dangerous because truly, if you take scriptures out of context, you can really make the Bible say whatever you want it to say. People that like to cherry pick script, like a verse here, a verse there, and, and then duct tape them all together somehow. You can literally, if you wanted to, make the Bible say whatever you wanted it to say. My father used to give a, a funny example of this because you could literally pluck two scriptures from the gospels and stick them together to make them say crazy stuff. For example, in Matthew, the Bible says, uh, and Judas hung himself. In the book of Luke, there's another verse that says, go thou and do likewise. Well, you could, that's an extreme example, but you could put those two verses of scripture together where, and preach it as Judas hung himself Go thou and do likewise, you know, and make it a, a, a message on suicide, the biblical basis for suicide. And so literally, that's an extreme example, but no question, you can cherry pick scriptures and then from the uh, lack of context, if you will, make them say whatever you want them to say. And you can't do that. When you are studying scripture, one of the things that you've got to be responsible to do is to read the context of the scripture. Read the context. What do I mean by read the context of the scripture? Well, it's one of the reasons, by the way, that um, we're sending these study Bibles to people and, and helping, helping people with their, their devotional time, their study life. One of the things that you'll understand about um, context is this. You've got to be able to read the Bible. And number one, it's important to understand who wrote this, who wrote what I'm reading. Number two, it's important to understand who were they writing it to? 
you know, because I could, I could say or write something down that was supposed to be said to somebody that could be, if, if it was directed towards somebody else, completely taken out of context. Let me give you an example. Um, let's just say I was, okay, this is an extreme example, but it's funny. So it'll, it'll help you guys understand if I was writing a note to someone and that same note was taken and given to someone else that I didn't mean for it to be given to in that context, there could be problems. Let me give you an example. Let's say I wrote a note to my son, my little three-year-old son and said, I want you to go into my bedroom. No, let me, let me change it. I want you to go into daddy's bedroom and take off your clothes. Cause you know, I'm getting him ready for bed. So I want him to put his jammies on. So if I wrote my little three-year-old son a note that said, I want you to go into daddy's bedroom and take off your clothes. If that same note was given to one of my wife's friends, <laughs> then the, the context here is going to change. So if that same note <laughs> goes to one of my wife's friends and they see this note from me that says, go into daddy's bedroom and take off your clothes. It's, it's <laughs> that you have to read it in context. <laughs> that wasn't for you. That was for my son, not you. And so, so you need to understand when you take, when you take something out of context, it can ruin it. It can completely ruin it. It causes big trouble. <laughs> I'm crying. I've literally, I've made myself cry. Uh, but it's a perfect example because context matters. You know, who wrote it? I wrote it. Ted Shuttlesworth Jr. wrote it. Who was it to? It was to my three-year-old son. Well, what was happening? Okay, ask the third question. What was happening in that time? Well, it was night. At the time, because you you could even read that forty years later, and it would be weird if that that you know note was written to my forty three year old son, you know, and I'm like in my late seventies, early eighties. Then, and still in that context, it's off because now you're messing with the time frame. So, what was happening in the time it was written? That's an important question. It's an important question. For example, at the time the note was written. My son was three and I was his dad. And it was, if you want to get very specific, at the time it was written, it was nine o'clock at night. And so it was time for him to put on his jammies. So by understanding the fullness of it, I'm writing to a three-year-old son who it's past his bedtime. He needs to go into daddy's room. He needs to take off his clothes and get his jammies on. Okay, well, now that we know who it was written to, who wrote it, the context or the time frame around when it was written, it helps us now to fully understand the meaning of that note. And many people don't take the time to do those three things at all uh, with scriptures that they're studying. And uh, so it's important to do that. So let me give you an example. Go to uh, Philippians. Let's go to the book of Philippians. Um, chapter four, Philippians chapter four, 
This is a very popular scripture, without question, very popular. But it's also one of the verses, someone asked me a moment ago in the, in the comments section, uh, what, what is a verse that you've seen taken out of context a lot? This one that I'm getting ready to read you is, get, is taken out of context quite often, actually, quite often. And I'll explain what I mean by that in a moment um, and how, but we're going to go to Philippians chapter four and um, I'm going to read you just the verse that people cherry pick. And then I'm going to read you the context of the verse in fullness and we'll go down through it and take a look at it. And then I'm going to show you some crazy ways that people have used this verse in the past that I've seen personally. Morning, Ashley. Look at this. Uh, Philippians 4 and verse 13. It's a verse you know, many people know, but also taken out of context often. Philippians 4.13. Listen, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The ESV says through him who strengthens me. I can do all things. Now, I bet you every Christian on this uh, broadcast or listening on the podcast has heard this verse hundreds of times and probably have quoted it hundreds of times, hundreds of times. And so, uh, and, I, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break this down for you, but this is a verse that gets cherry picked all the time to mean pretty much anything anyone wants it to mean. Like pretty much anything anybody wants this to mean, they, they, they stick this verse on. Uh, let, me, let me give you an example. Uh, well, tomorrow, you know, tomorrow I've got a big deal that, I, that I'm really praying goes through. It's a business deal. Uh, I'm just believing that, you know, I'll be able to do my best uh, when I'm in the business deal. I'm just believing that everything will go smoothly. Uh, but, you know, I'm just confessing I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Well, you know, yes, that's true. And we're believing God strengthens you and that the Holy Spirit gives you wisdom and all that. But this particular verse has nothing to do with that. You know, going through to do a business deal, hoping it goes through and I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It, it, it's not, that's not the context of the verse and that's not how it's supposed to be used at all. And I'm going to show you that uh, through what Paul says before. It's important to read the whole uh, section there so you know what the context is. Let's read it together. Um, in Philippians chapter 4, uh, let's start back with verse 10. Starting back with verse 10. Uh, listen to this. <clears throat> Paul, Paul writes to the Philippian church and says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length, you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And the word share here uh, is actually could be more literally translated to have fellowship in my trouble. Let me keep reading. It was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, 
No church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even Thessalonica, you sent me help. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. So let me stop there and just break this down for you so you understand what we're talking about. I just read the 10th verse all the way down through the 17th verse to give us a little bit more context of what Paul meant when he said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Well, first of all, uh, who is Paul writing to? First, we know who wrote it. Paul wrote it. The apostle Paul wrote this letter. Who's he writing it to? The church in Philippi, the Philippian church. That's who, that's who he's writing to. Um, in what context is he writing it or, or at what point is he writing it? He's writing it um, in response to them sending him an offering or offerings, multiple as he mentions here, to take care of him or to bless him uh, as he's doing the work of Christ. Now, one of the things that's important is that Paul's making the point that I have learned, understand, we're talking about first century church here. We're talking about heavily, heavily persecuted church, heavily persecuted. People are being murdered and tortured for their faith in Christ. Uh, literally, you know, this wasn't even, Christianity wasn't even recognized um, as, as a, you know, it, it, by Rome as a, a religion that was okay to practice until midway through the third century. We're talking first century. You know, people attribute that to Constantine, by the way. It wasn't Constantine. It wasn't fully done until Theodosius about 70 or 80 years later after that. So think about this context. Paul's in extreme persecuted conditions. And no question, you look at the Apostle Paul's life, beaten on his back with rods, stoned, literally, people wonder if Paul was brought back from the dead. He was, he was stoned until dead and then thrown outside the city and gets up and keeps on going, shipwrecked, uh, you know, all, imprisoned many times. So all these things, Paul's going through extreme persecution, not just for being a Christian, for being an apostle and for preaching the gospel and working signs, wonders, and miracles. And so he's, he's using this as the context about what he's saying to them. He's saying, listen, I rejoice that you revived your concern for me. The Philippian church was concerned for Paul because of what he was going through as he's ministering for Christ. He said, I'm not speaking of being in need. Uh, he said, I've learned in whatever situa situation I am to be content. So let's, let's go here to verse 12. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. By the way, people also like to use this um, passage of scripture to uh, speak against the prosperity message. Well, you see what Paul's saying here? Paul's saying that he's learned how to be in need and to abound. See, see how Paul's writing to the church? And they're taking it out of context too. Because that's not, he's not speaking against the prosperity message. He's speaking of persecutions for preaching the gospel. Let me ask you a question. Do you honestly think that if you were imprisoned in the first century, you know, whether it be in Rome, you know, in Western Europe or in the Middle East, what do you think they're going to do? Throw you into a nice cushy cell 
and give you three hot meals a day. And you, you think that they're going to give you like four course meals. You think that they're going to make sure. I mean, there wasn't all the things we have now that are happening in prisons where people get nice clothes and they stay warm and they have a bed to sleep in and they have, you know, food to eat every day, three hot meals a day, and they have exercise yards. And, you know, that's not what was happening in first century Rome. And it's not what was happening in the Middle East. So if you think Paul was going to some cushy cell where he got to work out and be in the yard uh, for multiple hours a day, got to read books in the library, got to go down and have three hot meals, uh, got to buy treats from the commissary, that that's not Paul's experience in jail. I'm sure that they that there were many times that he was cold. I mean, if you read his own letters, you know, he said, hey, by the way, when you come to visit me in prison, please bring me my cloak. <laughs> so apparently the cloak that Paul had uh, that, that he owned personally kept him way warmer than whatever blankets the Romans were giving him. So he said, please bring me my cloak when you come. So I'm sure Paul was cold in his cells. I'm sure that Paul faced hunger and he was in a place where he was brought low. He was beaten, all these things for the gospel's sake, for the sake of the gospel. So he's saying all these things to the Philippian church. What's he saying? I've gone through these things. I've learned what it means to be hungry. I've learned what it means to be brought low and to to abound. I've learned what it means to have plenty and I've learned what it means to have nothing. But then he goes on to say, but I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So what is Paul really saying in context here in this letter to the Philippian church? He's saying to them that uh, no matter what Christ, what I do for Christ, let me break it down like this. He's saying, I don't, if I go to jail, if I write you letters from jail, doesn't matter. I'm not going to quit. I'm not going to stop doing what God called me to do because I had to go to jail. I'm not going to stop doing what God called me to do because I didn't get enough meals. I'm not going to stop doing what I'm called to do because I'm cold. I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I'm going to keep pressing on because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He called me into this ministry and he's strengthening me as I do this ministry. And I don't care what persecution comes my way. I don't care what persecution comes my way. I can do all things through Christ. So this recognize this with me that this final, these final paragraphs he's writing in his letter to the Philippians, he's saying to them, and it's so important that he, that he, that you hear that he's saying this, he's saying that though I'm going through all of these things as an apostle of Christ, though I'm doing all of it, I want you to know nothing's going to stop me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And then he's thanking them. Thank you for thinking of me. Thank you for sending me offerings and blessings that you knew what I was going through. And, and, and I love this. He says that even when I was going through this, he said, um, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except for you only. And I love this. Let's keep reading because I'm going to show you another verse in this same passage that's taken out of context often. Um, you were the only church that entered into to giving and receiving with me when I left Macedonia. Verse 17, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Or the, another way to say it in the footnote here, I seek the profit that accrues to your account. What's he saying? It's I'm not trying to get you to continue sending me offerings, but I'm thankful because I know what giving and receiving does. I know that you're going to be blessed is what he's trying to teach them because you gave to me. Now look at this. 
Verse 18, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Now, now listen to this. Verse 19. Verse 19 is taken out of context all the time. All the time. This is what he says to the Philippians. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Okay? Verse 19 is another one. My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. This is another verse, verse 19, out of context all the time. You'll hear people say stuff like this. My God will supply all my needs. That's not what Paul said. He said, and my God will supply all your needs. But once again, who's writing it? Paul, who's he writing it to? The Philippian church. What's the context? Read earlier and you remember what I said. They were the only church that gave him offerings and sowed seed into his ministry so that he would be blessed. But he's saying, because you did that, you're going to be blessed. And so look at this, because it's so very important. Paul's saying here, and now, after all the things I just said, the fact that uh, you've blessed me and you were the only church to bless me and you've given me gifts that are a fragrant offering and all that. Now, let me say, and my God will supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. So the reason this is taken out of context is you could cherry pick this verse and say, well, uh, you know, I know I'm really going through it, but God's going to supply all my needs according to his riches and glory. No, that's not true for everybody. That is not true for everybody. So let me just say, not everybody is qualified to come in here and cherry pick uh, Philippians 4.19 and start quoting it over their life. If you are not a tither, and if you are not a giver, then you don't get the blessing Paul just pronounced over the Philippian church. The whole reason that he said that to them was because of the seeds that they sowed into his ministry. He said, because you're a person or a church of sowing and reaping, now here's the result. My God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. So notice, he didn't write that verse to any other church. Why? Not that God's not willing to supply their needs too, but notice it's a covenant thing. When you give, it'll be given back to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will God cause men to give unto your bosom. And so what is God willing to bless every church? Yes. Is God willing to bless you? Yes. Those of you that are watching, he's willing to bless you. He's ready to bless you. But notice the context here. You can't just stand up and start saying, my God will supply all my needs and not be a tither and not be a giver and not be faithful in what the word commands you to do because you cannot take the blessings of the word unless you've done the prerequisites of the word. And so these two verses in Philippians 4 get cherry-picked and taken out of context all the time. I can do all things. Let me tell you another funny one about Philippians 4.13. I was, I was watching a guy preach, literally, not in the service, but I saw it online. I would never be in a service like this. But the guy, literally, he was teaching this to his congregation. Anything you do 
is acceptable as long as you do it as unto the Lord. Literally, this is what he was teaching. Anything you do is acceptable as long as you do it with a right heart and do it unto the Lord. And this was the examples that he was giving. It's okay to get drunk as long as you're drinking as unto the Lord. As long as your heart is right before God, you love the Lord. It's okay to be drunk as long as you do it as unto the Lord. He went on to say, it's all right to snort lines of cocaine as long as you do it as unto the Lord. Why? Because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things. Yeah, exactly, Billion. Stripping would be another one. You can be a stripper. As long as you strip as unto the Lord, you've got to love him with your whole heart. It's got to be, your heart has to be right. And so literally this man was teaching his congregation, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. As long as you're doing them as unto the Lord, anything's okay. Well, that would be one of the most extreme and dangerous, it wasn't John Crowder, it would be one of the most dangerous and extreme examples of taking verses out of context. But that is something that's actually being said from a pulpit somewhere. And there's people stupid enough to actually believe what's being said. So understand something with me today. Uh, context is important. <laughs> You've got to, uh, but, but see, Andrew, that's another one. You know, D David didn't dance naked before the Lord. The Bible says that he took off his kingly garments and he put on his linen ephod. That was the priestly garments. He put on the priestly garments and his wife was the one that said danced that way before. But he was wearing the robe of a priest, not the robe of a king. So there's things that we hear all the time that you've got to go back and look at the context. Does the Bible really say that? And if it does, in what, uh, in what context is the Bible saying it? Who wrote that? Paul. Who did he write it to? The Philippian church. Well, what did they do? Gave him an offering. The only church to give him an offering. And what's he saying? So understand as we broke those things down, it's important to know what the Bible is saying. So that's number one, taking scriptures out of context. Taking scriptures out of context. The second one is close, but it's different. And I'm going to give you an example. Um, <laughs> it's true. Pastor Dave saying those kind of statements made by a minister puts the minister's walking down. No question to me. I mean, I have no question. I'm sure the dude was doing drugs and getting drunk. If he felt the need to stand in his pulpit and, and preach those things to his people, I have very little doubt that he's trying to justify from the Bible actions he's taking in his own personal life. And later you find out that those things are true. I don't judge another man's servant, but you've got to be very careful when people are preaching doctrines that make you feel comfortable living in sin. Be very careful. If you hear somebody preaching a doctrine that makes you comfortable living in sin, that doctrine is a doctrine of devils because God will never allow you to be comfortable living in sin. So number two um, is something, the theological scholarly term for it is eisegesis. It just means reading things into the Bible that aren't actually there. Reading things into scripture that are not there. So there's a difference between exegesis and eisegesis. Eisegesis is the problem. That's when you read a story or a passage and you read something into it 
that's not there. Another reason for this is because, let's say a minister's preaching a message or you're studying for something uh, and, you, and you take a preconceived idea or, notion, or notion and you go into your Bible study with trying to prove a preconceived idea. So what you're doing now is instead of let, let instead of letting the Bible um, reveal itself or interpret itself, you pick an idea or a thesis and you say, now I'm going to go find scriptures that support my thoughts. That's dangerous. Don't do that. And people do that all the time. Even preachers do it. And, um, and, and, and it causes problems with interpretation. And uh, it, it causes us to have huge Bible study problems. I'll give you one. Let's say, for example, that I was going to preach on the problem of um, the fact that people aren't attending church like they should. So my message on Sunday is going to be about people need to get back to proper church attendance, faithfulness to church attendance. Everybody open with me this morning to 2 Chronicles chapter 27. Okay, let's go to 2 Chronicles 27. And let's say that I'm going to be preaching um, I'm going to be preaching on the lack of church attendance this morning and why we need to be more faithful to church. And I want you to see what the Bible has to say about it. Even here in 2 Chronicles chapter 27, and this, this happens all the time. I'll even give you a funny story about myself. And so um, let's read what I, let's say a preacher would read as his text from 2 Chronicles chapter 27, verses 1 and 2, we're reading about uh, why you should be more faithful to church. Let's read 1 and 2. Jotham was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jerusha, the daughter of Zadok, verse 2. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Uzziah had done, except he did not enter the temple of the Lord, but the people still followed corrupt practices. And so here's what we can do. You can sit here and look at this, these first two verses of 2 Chronicles 27 and say, see that? Now Jotham was doing everything right except entering into the temple of the Lord. And uh, the Bible says that he did everything that was right in God's eyes except entering into the temple of the Lord. And so you could read this passage of scripture in 2 Chronicles 27, verses 1 and 2, and you could tell everybody in the congregation, you see that, even though he got everything else right, he got this wrong because he wouldn't enter into the temple of God. First of all, there was no church at this time. Church was The church wasn't until the New Testament. But secondly... Uh, that's not what the Bible's trying to tell us here. It's not at all what the um, Bible's trying to tell us. In fact, it's trying to tell us something good that he did, not something bad that he did. And so one of the, the reason it's good, if you read the whole context and you understand what the scripture's trying to tell us, is that his father Uzziah was actually prideful and did things that he shouldn't have done in the temple that caused his punishment. His father was punishment. Excuse me, his father was punished and received punishment for doing things he shouldn't have done in the temple. Look at this. I'll go back to 26 verses, starting in verse 16. 
But when he, now this is talking about his father, Uzziah, but when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction, for he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense, incense on the altar of incense. But Azariah the priest went in after him with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor. And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, it is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you've done wrong, and it will, be, it will bring to you no honor from the Lord God. So do you see that? If we read 2 Chronicles 26, 16 through 18, you immediately understand 27 verses 1 and 2. And somebody might take this, and it's been done many times. I want to show you about church attendance. Look at this. Jotham did not enter into the temple of God. That's not what the Bible's trying to tell us here. It's telling us it was good that he didn't enter the temple. He wasn't a priest. He was a king. And it wasn't his business, nor was it his father's business, to be going into the temple burning incense on the altar. That's for the priest to do. That's why they rebuked him and sent him out of the temple and told him he'd be punished by God for his prideful actions. What was his pride? Well, I don't need the priest. I'm the king. I'll come in here and I'll, I'll offer the uh, sacrifices and the incense myself. I don't need the priest that God put in the temple for the purpose of burning incense. And so they rebuked him. But notice what happens when you start just reading things in. Because people don't want to take the time to actually study scripture. They want to just quickly go on the internet and find a few scriptures to put together for their message or for their Bible study uh, to prove the point that they already made up in their mind they want to prove. And yes, we should be faithful to church. Without question, we should be faithful to church. However, this isn't the passage of scripture to use to make that statement. A better, a much better one to use if you were going to preach on church attendance and why it's important to be faithful to church would be Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 25. L listen to Hebrews 10, 25. Um, the Bible says, and in fact, let's go back to verse 19 and read the context. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through, the through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful, verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, verse 25. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So notice what is happening here. We're being, uh, we're being encouraged by the writer of Hebrews to go and gather as a church more often, not less often. And that's where you'd want to go, where the Bible's actually talking in context about being faithful to church or the assembly. But notice what happens. It doesn't happen often. And that's why Paul told Timothy, you've got to be careful to rightly divide the word of truth, which means it can be wrongly divided and is often wrongly divided. Remember, my father's on right now. I remember I preached a message and he was in the audience and I made the mistake of just coming up with a theory and then backing it up by scripture. And um, <laughs> I went into the book of Genesis and uh, I was preaching from the book of Genesis where, you know, the Bible says the three men approached Abraham 
and came into his camp and Abraham recognized that they were holy men, recognized that it was God, it was the Lord. And he, he told them, stay here a while and uh, I'll you know wash their feet and prepared them a meal and all this. And uh, I remember preaching as a young preacher from the, the, the platform. That was Hebrews 10, 25, Bonnie. I remember reading and preaching from the pulpit. I said, my God, some of y'all don't even recognize what's going on here in the book of Genesis. But three men came into Abraham. This was a picture in the Old Testament of the Trinity showing up on the earth, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. I, I preached on it for probably 10 minutes. You know, and how? That's the Trinity showing up. This is God and his triune nature showing up to Abraham, his man of covenant. You know, and I, and I preached it and preached it and preached it. And, uh, you know, uh, my mom said to my dad after, wasn't that, wasn't that a powerful revelation that, that Teddy had during that message, that that was the Trinity showing up to Abraham? My dad said, not really. <laughs> not really. Uh, I, and, and he said, I, I don't believe it was. Well, my dad's correction there made me go back and relook at the passage. And if you study it, and by the way, keep on studying it. Don't just read a portion. Keep on reading. What, what does the Bible actually say happened? Well, if you keep reading the story and let it progress for you, it's not, it doesn't even take deep Bible study. It just uh, keeps on, you just got to keep on reading. Um, it's the story of after uh, God did show up to Abraham, but the other two men were not Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Keep reading the passage. You know what you'll find? Those were the two angels that God sent into Sodom and Gomorrah to warn Lot and his family to leave the city because destruction from heaven was coming on those twin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. So if you read the story, it actually tells that the Lord left and sent those angels and those two angels went in and were the ones that knocked on Lot's door and that the you know homosexual men of the city came and tried to take them away and Lot uh, was the one that was led out by these two angels. And so all, all it takes is you to do a little bit more reading and you understand that it's dangerous to come into the Bible with a preconceived idea to say, this is the point I want to prove. What scriptures can I use to back it up? No, don't do that. Let the Bible say what the Bible says, study it, let it explain itself, let it uh, divide itself. In Bible school, they call this the study of hermeneutics, how to rightly divide scripture with scripture. And when you understand how to do that, you'll never get tripped up and you won't get to a place where you see, oh, I actually was trying to make the Bible say something it never said in the first place. And that happens to a lot of people, but it's because of a lack of study. And Paul made sure that that was one of the last things that he said to Timothy before he was executed in Rome. He said, make sure you take great care to work, to be a, a godly worker who can be approved after testing by the Lord so that you can uh, stand before God and be approved. You want to be approved by the Lord. And so it's important. So that's number two. Number one is taking scriptures out of context. Number two is reading things into scripture that just simply aren't there. Just simply aren't there. Um, I'll give you the third one here before we pray today. The third is very important as well um, because I see this happening more and more and more, more than ever before really, is that people, your mind, here's what happens, especially if you're an intelligent person, you like to read, you like to study, your mind will always wander for new information. Your mind will always wander for 
um, new revelation, new revelation. You'll see this if you watch Christian television for any period of time. You got people that now sit on shows and everybody's trying to outdo the other one with the latest, greatest revelation of the word of God that no one's ever seen before. Um, and, and it's a mistake because uh, obviously if, if there's something that you've that's probably never been heard in the history of, of the Christian church for 2,000 years, it's probably not right. <laughs> if 2,000 years of godly men and women didn't know what you know, it's probably not something from the Lord. Um and it happens all the time. People trying to get new revelation, trying to find new things. Y'all have never seen this before. That's why I have such a doubt, a heavy, heavy doubt when people put out translations of the Bible in English that claim they've found something supernatural that no one's ever seen, like the Passion Translation. I have found the love language of the Bible. We've discovered the true love language of the Bible, which can be found in the Passion Translation which I think is an extreme stretch to even call it a translation of scripture. Um, and, and, you know, it's crazy. And people eat it up because it's the latest, greatest thing on the block. Everybody runs to their Christian bookstore, to Amazon.com. They see somebody's got, what is this passion? Oh, it's the love language of the Bible. And they go, and, and when you find out that one guy did it, you know, one dude had a thought, I found the love language of the Bible and I'm going to translate the Bible in this new love language uh, beware, be aware of what's going on. Stick to things that are properly done. Stick to things that are done responsibly and uh, done with oversight and done by people that are qualified to do them, by the way. Just, just because you speak other languages doesn't mean you're qualified to translate the Bible into English by yourself. And so it's, it's an issue. And so because people's minds work like this, they're always trying to find a new revelation, always trying to out-revelate somebody else. They'll start to go to extra-biblical. This is the third one. Catch this. They'll start to try to go to extra-biblical writings. What does extra-biblical mean? Writings outside of the Bible. We could call them non-canonical writings, things that are not found in your Bible. And let me just tell you, I, I did a whole, uh, I've done, you know, last week I did multiple um, sessions on this, that you can believe your Bible and why you know that you can believe the Bible's true, why these books that we have are inerrant, they're inspired by God, all those things. And they go and they, they go to books that are not from the Bible. You know, they go into the Jewish writings of the Talmud, or they'll go into, um, you know, uh, apocryphal books or pseudepigraphal books. They'll go find the book of Enoch. Well, I found, you know, they'll watch some YouTube video from somebody. The book of Enoch should have been included in the Bible. And, you know, the book of Enoch was really God, one of God's inspired writings, but it was kept back because of persecution. It was hidden and it should have been in the Bible, but it's not in the Bible. And we should read it as Christians. You can read it if you want to, but don't put the book of Enoch, which by the way, is not even an apocryphal book of the Bible. It's what's known as a pseudepigraphal book, a book that's not, not recognized by anyone as canonical or, or by inspired by God's word. Don't, uh, don't look at a book like Enoch or the gospel of Thomas or the gospel of Mary or the gospel of Peter, some apocryphal work that's uh, a Gnostic gospel, the Bible, uh, not, not included in our canon of scripture for very good reason, by the way filled with nonsense. Like, let me give you an example. In the Gospel of Thomas, uh, they say that Mary Magdalene should be taken away 
and turned into a man so that she can inherit eternal life because women are not worthy of life. And so, um, you know, they, they go and read the gospel of Thomas, a Gnostic gospel, um, and they say, see, the Bible says that men, men are only the ones worthy of life. We should turn her into a woman so she'll be worthy of eternal life. Uh, you know, so what is that now? We're going to build a doctrine on, on uh, transgenderism uh, so that you can gain eternal life. There's a reason that these books are not recognized as God's word. Not, number one, they contradict God's actual word. And then you've got books like the book of Enoch. I, I, I was looking through that one time as someone was breaking it down. There's like thousands of errors, thousands of errors uh, in the book of Enoch. But people will preach from it. They'll read from it. You compare other scripture to it. You know, inflated piety. They'll take the writings of the church fathers in the first century. And, and you say, well, this this we're going to elevate this just as much and all these different things. It's a mistake. You know, and there's even things that we have in the Bible uh, that we don't have uh, that people, there are things that are written in extra biblical works that people now recite like it's just, you know, scriptural. The things that are just, they say, well, you know, it's, it's just, that's just what the Bible says. You know, for example, we know that, um, you know, that uh, Satan, Lucifer, he was the praise and worship leader in heaven. You know, he was, he was the praise and worship leader. The Bible says he was in charge of all praise and worship and music. Well, that's found in the apocryphal books of the Bible. Something that might be in the Catholic Bible. It's not in the Protestant Bible because those aren't God's word, by the way. Uh, and so they build doctrines on stuff that was written in the uh, the apocryphal books, and then they they say it from the pulpit like it's you know like it's scripture. You know, Satan Lucifer was the the praise and worship leader of of heaven. The Bible doesn't teach that. That's found in the apocryphal books of the Bible. So there's all kinds of things like that, and people start comparing. You know, why? Here's the question I have: Why? Why is the Bible not enough for people? I, I always wonder this. Why is the Bible itself? I mean, there's a lot here, by the way, if you haven't read it, there's a ton, 66 books. Why is the Bible not enough for people? Why do they have why are there Christians trying to go back into Jewish feast days? Why are Christians trying to get a, a, a Jewish revelation just because we're spiritual Israel doesn't mean you're supposed to go back and start celebrating the feast days and you know I don't get it. I don't get it. Why is the Bible itself? Not enough. I don't, I don't get that. You know, it's like, well, we need to find something even more revelatory than the Bible because we're going to get into some deep stuff here. It's like, I don't get it. I don't get why that they don't have, there's not enough in here for you to preach the rest of your life. You can never exhaust the mighty word of God. You'll never, you'll never exhaust the word of God. You'll never have uh, too much revelation on God's word. Never. And so I want to just encourage you with these three things. As you're studying the Bible, and you should be, it's all right to use commentaries. It's all right to use notes. It's all right to use, you know, we, we, we look at other things. You know, I like to use, uh, I like to sometimes look at uh, Finnis J, Finnis uh, uh, Dake's notes on the Bible. And there's a Dake's Bible. He didn't write a Bible. It's just his notes are at the bottom uh, of the Bible. I like Dake's notes on the Bible. I look through them all the time. I like commentaries. I look. I like looking at those things. But you also have to remember, they are not God's word. It might help you to understand some things or historical context. I get all that. 
but I'm not going to go and read the gospel of Mary and the gospel of Thomas and the book of Enoch and put it up with the word of God. Say this should have been, I actually heard preachers. I've heard, I've heard this. I've heard preachers get on and preach about how, uh, there, there are certain Bible uh, books that aren't in the Bible that really should have been in the Bible more than other books that are actually in there. It's like, seriously, you're going to actually call into question the canonicity of scriptures because of something you read on a website somewhere? <laughs> I mean, it just blows my mind. This book should have been, to be honest with you, this book should have been in the Bible. And there's a couple of books that I don't even know it should be in. You're going to call doubt to books of the Bible that are that have been canon? You know, it, it just it blows my mind. And people don't even think. They don't even think. They don't even study to show themselves approved. They don't even know that the books they're reading out of, you know, they find a couple things they really like that back up something that they've been preaching. So, oh yeah, my God, this thing should have been. They don't even understand what they're doing. They don't, they literally don't understand what they're doing. And there's Christians that want to get all in on all this new stuff. And they find, well, I found this. And I really, I really love this. And, you know, and, and then, and then there's another thing that, that, Another thing that happens that I'll, I'll group in with this before I pray. There's stuff that's, um, you know, it becomes popular. So because it becomes popular, um, you know, people start using it in messages and using it in their church. And, you know, just because somebody wrote and released the shack doesn't mean it needs to be the basis for uh, people to start uh, building uh, doctrine off of it and, you know, p things that portray God as a woman and all this stuff. It's like, you know, people start saying, yeah, you know, God, God probably, you know, probably is more womanly than he is manly. And then this, people start building doctrines uh, that, you know, God's a woman or God, you know, we need to start changing the, and there are people that did this, by the way, they took a translation of the Bible into English, took all the uh, gender references to God and made them neutral versus uh, masculine and released a Bible where the, uh, everything in referring to God was no longer he or his, but they changed it to a gender neutral uh, pronouns because, you know, God's probably more womanly than he is manly. And, you know, you go through all, it's, it's like ridiculous. And people that don't even have enough knowledge to study the word of God are trying to make claims about the canonicity of scripture. And they're so, what ends up happening is they get so into the mental they get so into the mental. We need, you know, I need to read that. I, th I bet there's some revelation in there that I've never seen before. That, you know, if you honestly think, <laughs> I mean, it blows my mind. You've got you've got people who say that, you know, books like Enoch or others should have been included in God's word. What you're telling us is now, now think about this logically, because God promised in His word to preserve His word. He promised in his word to preserve his word. Forget the errors, forget the factual errors, the historical errors, forget all of that about something like the book of Enoch. And let's just think, because there's people, you know, the lost books of the Bible, you know, that should have been included and for some reason were persecuted and kept out of the Bible. You're telling me that for all of these years, we find a book now later that should have been part of the canon of scripture that isn't. So really God failed in preserving his word and that it was a message that people should have had in churches all over the world for a thousand, two thousand years and never had it because somehow God's word was manipulated. 
yet we have uh, copies of the New Testament going all the way back to the second century within one lifetime of people that were around at the time of Jesus. But you've got these secret books that were somehow hidden away that should have been in the Bible. It's ridiculous. The canon of scripture, by the way, is not something that barely came together. I want you to know that. What we have in this Bible is not something that barely came together, that somehow we scraped it by and were able to make up and people were just sitting in a room going, yeah, that seems like a good book. Throw that one in too. What's that? Oh, Revelation talks about three-headed monsters. I love that one. Throw it in too. That sounds like a... No, that's not how the canon of scripture was recognized. And by the way, no one formed the canon of scripture. It was recognized by godly men. They recognized as they read it. Even Peter, by the way, in the New Testament, recognized Paul's writings as scripture and says so in his letter, refers to Paul's writing as scripture. So the Bible is enough. That's exactly right. The Bible is enough and we don't need extra canonical, extra biblical revelations from apocryphal, pseudepigraphal books and non, you know, non-Christian writings, if we could just compare it with this, you'll really see the truth of what 2 Peter 1 means. No, you don't need it. Read the word. Read men of God that are writing about the word, not about these other things that have nothing to do with the Holy Ghost, nothing to do with the Bible. And I'm telling you, if you'll do that, it'll help you because what ends up happening is people get into this stuff, they start reading things out of context, you know, and then what happens? Let's talk about the dangers of it real quick. You know, people start quoting, like I said, uh, Philippians 4, 19, and they quoted over themselves and quoted over themselves and quoted over themselves. My God will supply all my needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. You can quote that until you're blue in the face. But if you're not a tither and a giver, those things are not going to happen in your life. And so what, what happens then? People get disenfranchised. They start getting discouraged. Well, I can't believe it. I've been quoting this. I've been confessing this over my life for six months and nothing has changed. And then what do they start saying? Well, I guess the word of God doesn't work. You know, I've confessed it just like they've said we should confess the word. I've confessed the word for six months. I've been saying God will supply my needs. None of my needs are being supplied. It's because you just took that out of context and tried to confess it and quote it without doing what the Bible teaches to be blessed. And so we have to let scripture interpret scripture. Scripture must, every person that's watching, put it in the comments right now. Let scripture interpret scripture. Let scripture interpret scripture. Put it, put it in the comments. I know that's not popular because people want to form their fancy doctrines and fancy revelations that literally can't be backed up by the word unless you twist and turn it in three different ways to make it support the things that you are actually preaching. Let scripture interpret scripture. Put that in the comments. Every person, I don't care if you're on Periscope, Facebook, YouTube, if you're listening on the podcast, just say it out loud. Let scripture interpret scripture. Why am I doing, you know, the question is, why am I doing all these broadcasts recently? I've been doing a bunch of broadcasts for you guys on, on the word and on studying the word and knowing that the word is true and uh, knowing. Why am I doing that? I'm going to tell you why I'm doing it. Because the Bible says of itself in Psalm 138 and verse 2, it says that God has exalted or magnified his word above his name. exalted 
his word above his name. If you read it in some translation like this, it says this. Uh, the ESV says in the text, you have exalted above all things your name and your word. Uh, the footnote says here, the liter more literal translation, or you have exalted your word above all your name. And so that's why I say that. His word is the highest thing in the universe. There's nothing higher than the word of God. There's nothing more powerful than the word of God. The Holy Spirit will not operate in the absence of the word of God. He confirms his word with signs following. The word is the highest thing in the universe. And so I want you to understand something with me today. The re oh, Pastor Dave, don't even, don't even get me started. I can't even, I can't even start on that. I don't even have time. I don't even have enough time to deal with this. Pastor Dave's bringing up a practice uh, of Christians that are going to New Age conferences and, and, and um, expos and setting up tables with destiny cards and angel boards to get in with people that, that are used to tarot cards and, you know, Ouija boards, whatever. I can't even, I can't even get into that. I don't have time. I just, I'm gonna have to go to Lama's classes just to think about it. But understand, God has exalted his word above his name. So understand there's nothing more, more powerful in the universe than the mighty word of God. And if we don't know how to properly study it, employ it, use it, put it into our lives, then we're missing out on God's number one resource for the believer, his mighty written word. Oh, my dad doesn't even know about that. I can't even, I can't even take the time. I can't even take the time to get into destiny cards and angel boards and grave soaking. I, maybe I'll do another broadcast on it. Maybe I'll come back and do a broadcast just on grave soaking, destiny cards, and, and angel boards. Because, I mean, this is how crazy... This is how crazy people are getting in the final moments of time before Jesus comes. Somehow the word of God is no longer enough for these nut jobs. And I, I use that term, not wanting to offend actual nut jobs. I feel nut, actual nut jobs would be offended that I grouped them in with these people that call themselves Christians that do this. I mean, it, it just, it, it's crazy. He said, please don't, I'm working on my taxes. He just said, it's doctrines of devils. And so I can't, I can't deal with it. It's, it's, it's crazy. Don't even look it up, Sonia. It's not even worth looking up. It's, it's crazy. Maybe I'll do a broadcast talking about it. I don't even want to talk about grave soaking in this broadcast. I can't do it. But know this, the reason I'm spending all this time encouraging you for the last week and a half on the mighty word of God is because we need to read more of it. Number one, we need to study it. We need to know what it's saying, what it says to us. The reason I launched Miracle Word University uh, by, the, by the leading of the Holy Spirit was because people that are in the body of Christ do not by any means understand Pentecostal doctrine well enough. If somebody asks you why you believe in divine healing and your answer is because I think my church believes in it, that is not an answer. And, not, and also, it's not an answer that'll get you healed or keep you walking in healing. If people ask you why you believe that God will finally, financially bless you and keep you walking in divine prosperity, and you say, because I think my church said something about it during offering time, 
That's not enough. Peter, the apostle, told us that we're supposed to be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within us, for the belief that we have, the faith that we have. You've got to be able to give an answer. That means you have to have understanding. And the reason that we need understanding is because without it, we'll fall into destruction. You'll know the truth, and the truth that you know will set you free or make you free. And so, yeah, maybe, you know what? I'll come back tomorrow. I'll do it tomorrow since since we're talking so much about it and people don't know. And and uh, it's, it's being, only reason I'll do it is because it's being nationally presented, internationally now, and it's happening all over the place and it's getting coverage. I'll do it. I'm going to come back tomorrow and talk about three elements, angel boards, <laughs> destiny cards, and grave soaking. Grave soaking. Just craziness. Crazy. Let me pray for you because what I'm praying today is the same thing that Dr. John G. Lake said all those years ago at the turn of the last century. If he could impart one thing to Christians across the board, one thing across the board, it would be spiritual hunger. And that's what I pray for you today. I'm praying that God gives you spiritual hunger like you've never had to study and read his word and to pray in the Holy Ghost and to pray in your known language. I'm telling you, I'm praying that God gives you spiritual. Why? The Bible promises, Matthew chapter five, blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness for they shall be filled. I'm praying that in 2020, as God gives you a supernatural hunger for his word and his spirit, that he will fill you beyond all measure, beyond anything you could have imagined with good things. He fills your mouth with good things. And that'll be your story as you hunger and thirst after righteousness in Jesus' name. So Father, I pray for every man and woman that are watching or listening today, I pray that from this day forward, a supernatural hunger will come upon your people. A supernatural thirst will come upon your people to read your word, to study it, to pray in the Holy Ghost, to pray in their known language, to seek your presence. Lord, as you said to Jeremiah, that when we seek after you with our whole heart, we'll find you. As you said in, uh, in Hebrews chapter 11, that when we search after you, seek you diligently, that you'll reward us. You reward those that diligently seek you. And so I thank you, Lord, today that as we're seeking you, as we're coming after you with our dedication, that you'll not only reward us, but we'll find you and that you'll show yourself strong and mighty upon our behalf in Jesus' mighty name. Now, Lord, I pray for every person that sent in prayer requests this morning via text, those that are believing for healing and deliverance. I take authority now over every attack of the enemy that's come against their physical body. In the mighty name of Jesus, I rebuke it and I command it now to leave them and never to come back again. In Jesus' mighty name. Father, I pray specifically for that precious baby that the prayer request came in today, born early, still in the ICU, needs a touch from God. I pray in Jesus' name, touch that baby today by your healing power. Keep your hand of anointing and strength on that baby's body. I thank you, Lord, that that baby's coming out of the ICU healthy, whole, strong. Anoint that baby in Jesus' mighty name. And I thank you, Lord, that you're answering our prayers quickly, that 2020 will be a year of violent increase and expedited favor. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen. If you believe it and receive that prayer, throw some emoji hands in the comments section 
And let me encourage you, those of you that are watching, if you've not yet done so, I want you to prayerfully consider today partnering with this ministry, Miracle Word Ministries. I want you to stand with us. I've prayed, Carolyn's prayed, we're believing for a thousand people that'll stand with this ministry in partnership at a minimum of $85 a month, that's $1,000 a year, believing for increase for you and for God to impact this generation by the power of the Holy Ghost before it's too late, before Jesus comes. And let me tell you, he's coming soon. And it's very easy to do. Uh, those of you that are watching, you can go to miracleword.com. You can either sow there a one-time offering or you can click the partner button and partner with us. And you can fill out the form and monthly sow a seed uh, into this ministry. If you like to use an app to give, you can use PayPal or Cash App or Venmo. We receive all of those. The information's on the screen. Uh, Cash App and Venmo, the username is the same, MWGive. And then, of course, if you're watching on Periscope or Facebook, you can use hashtag donate right in the comment section and sow a seed without ever leaving the broadcast. And I want to say thank you. Those of you that like to mail a check, you can do that as well. You make the check payable to Miracle Word Ministries. Our address is on the footer of our website on every page. Scroll to the bottom. You'll find the mailing address for Miracle Word Ministries at miracleword.com. And uh, you can give by check as well if you'd like to do that and depend on the United States Postal Service to somehow, by miracle manifestation, get your check safely to the office where it will then go to the bank, where after the bank then approves it after several business days, that seed will finally be in the ground after close to a month has gone by. <laughs> and so, yes, don't let me forget to remind you, coming up, starting this coming Tuesday, is Signs and Wonders Camp Meeting right here in Margate, Florida at Abundant Life Church. Uh, my father, this is his winter camp meeting that he holds every year here in, in South Florida. I want to encourage you to get here. This is one of the easiest places in America to get. Uh, there's three major airports that surround the church, West Palm Beach, Fort Lauderdale, Miami Airport. Fort Lauderdale is the closest. If you can get here, get here. If you're somewhere in Georgia or Florida, drive in if you want to. Fly in. Uh, there's, there's hotel information we can get to you. But all of the details, the directions, the address, the times, everything can be found at miracleword.com forward slash schedule, and you'll be able to see everything you need to see. It starts this coming Tuesday at 7 p.m., and then Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday at 10.30 a.m. and 7 p.m., morning services as well, uh, and so you're not going to want to miss those. Uh, we'll be also joined by uh, Bishop Rick Thomas. Uh, who pastors Abundant Life Church, and he'll be teaching as well. It's going to be a powerful, powerful week, and I want to encourage you to be there. If you're a minister and uh, you'd like to come but you pastor a church, that's why we schedule it this way. You can literally take Monday as your travel day and finish your, your uh, preaching and teaching at your church Sunday, travel on Monday, and then Tuesday night we begin, giving you Saturday to travel then back to your church as well. So Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, a power-packed four days, seven services. You're not going to want to miss it. So I want to encourage you to be here for Signs and Wonders Camp Meeting. If you need a miracle, get here, and uh, God will touch you. I know he will. It's going to be powerful starting this coming Tuesday. That's February the 18th through the 21st. February the 18th through the 21st. Brother Rambler, are you going to be in Florida? 
It's going to be good to see you. Love you too, Mike. So thank you guys. And thanks for sowing seeds. I appreciate you. We have people that are writing in every day. We have pe people that are joining with us, partnering with us. And by the way, uh, for every person that sows $100 or more, we're going to send you a gift this month in the mail. But those that sow $1,000 or more, we're going to be sending you this partner Bible. It's beautiful. Genuine leather, uh, life application study Bible in the New Living Translation. I liked it so much. I took one for myself. We're going to sign it to you and your family uh, as our gift to you and say thank you. And we love you so much. Um, apparently, I'm going to be back tomorrow at 10.30 a.m. talking about grave soaking, angel boards, and destiny cards, which I can't even believe that we have to discuss this stuff because it's actually happening in the body of Christ, uh, and it's crazy. I'm just going to say it off the bat, it's crazy. And if people are offended by that, you're crazy. <laughs> I love you guys. Listen, if you've not shared the broadcast today, Take a minute to share it. People need to see this broadcast and understand how to better study their Bible and receive from the Lord. I love you so much. Listen, let me do it. For those of you that stuck around, I love you very much. Um, I'm, I'm going to do something for you. I'm going to give you a free preview right now of this latest Miracle Word University course. So for those of you that, that stuck around to the end of the broadcast, you're getting an extra blessing. This is a preview, a sneak preview of the brand new course, Mountain Moving Faith on Miracle Word University. I love you guys. Have a blessed Thursday, and I'll see you tomorrow morning at 10.30 a.m. Eastern time for grave soaking. I won't get into shofars, but grave soaking, angel boards, destiny cards. I love you guys. Have a good one. Here's the preview. So in this video, I want to quickly show you something that I was speaking about in a previous video, and that is when we were talking about the measure of faith, uh, one of the warnings that uh, I give you and that you find in the scripture is to not exceed your measure of faith. And there's a reason that we talk about this. It is, I mentioned in the uh, previous video that it's damaging to you if you try to operate outside of your measure of faith in the same way that it would be, uh, I use the analogy of going to the gym. And if you tried to lay down on the bench press and put more weight on the bar than your body can handle, although you might be able to get to that weight one day, you're not there today. And so trying to operate in that level of strength when you're not there would end up being damaging to your body. If you didn't injure your uh, shoulders or strain your muscles lifting that weight, you would actually just drop the weight on yourself and maybe crush your chest. And so it's important to understand that you should never exceed your measure of faith. As we showed you in Romans chapter 12, the Bible says God has apportioned or dealt out to every man a measure of faith. And so it's important that you understand that you are currently at a certain level of faith. And uh, as we read that, uh, I'll read it to you from the NASB in this video, uh, Romans 12, 3. The Bible says, for through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of 
faith. So there is a measure to your faith. It's at a certain level right now. You should never try to do things that are beyond that level. I'll give you an example of that in a bit, but let's look at 1 Corinthians 7, 17. 1 Corinthians 7, 17. Listen to this. Paul writes, only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each in this manner, let him walk. And so I direct in all the churches. You see that? Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each in this manner, let him walk. So don't walk outside of the manner in which God's called you and assigned you and purposed you. Let's go on. Second Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. Listen to this. But we will not boast beyond our measure. You see that? We'll not boast beyond our measure, but within the measure of the sphere, which God apportioned to us as a measure to reach even as far as you. For we are not overextending ourselves as if we did not reach you, for we were the first to come even as far as you in the gospel of Christ. So understand what Paul's teaching here. We're not overextending our measure. We're not going beyond what we should be doing. We are operating within the sphere of our apportioned measure of faith. It's important to stay within your measure. Ephesians chapter four and verse seven, the Bible says, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then finally, let me read to you 1 Peter chapter four and verse 11. The Bible says, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God and whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So from these verses of scripture that I'm reading you, you can see and understand that there's a measure of faith in in which you're currently standing that God has blessed you with and that you've grown to that level that as Paul taught, you should never try to operate outside of your measure of faith. And one of the ways to ensure that you never operate outside the measure of your faith, and this is so very important to listen and adhere to this thought, one of the best ways, and I'd say it's the best way to ensure you'll never operate outside your measure of faith to the harm of yourself, your family, your ministry, whatever, is to only ever do what God called you to do and only ever do what he is directing you to do. Now that's the stuff leaders should be made of.